get to all of those tonight, and so I needed a little more time. That's why we're uh, taking an abbreviated um, song service tonight. And I, as I did last time, I'm going to use my handy-dandy computer here to, to quickly search Scripture if you ask questions. Uh, but to start with, as I like to do before I get into one of these, I want to establish some rules for the road, uh, and then we'll get into the five questions. Uh, first of all, uh, I, will, uh, I want to start by answering the questions that have been given to me in advance uh, and with each question, I will stop and ask if there are any follow-up questions. Uh, maybe, the, maybe my answer to the questions spawn a, another question that you might have. Um, or if you have new questions that you want to ask between the, the received questions, then that's your opportunity to, to ask. So um, that'll be kind of the general format. Um, uh, one rule that I always give in, in this is this is not intended to be a debate, okay? Uh, if I give an answer that you don't like or that you, uh, you want to uh, address with me, I'll be here all night to address it if you want to, but we're not going to have a, a long format debate uh, as, as part of this. And, and uh, if you have, a, I am assuming that when you ask a question, if you want to ask a question, that you're asking it in a spirit of humility and respect. In other words, don't ask the question in a form of an argument, you know, like, like congressmen do. Like, <laughs> spend five minutes giving a diatribe on why they don't like the guy they're interviewing, and then they ask a question that, that is a leading question. That's not what I mean. I mean, you know, if you sincerely want to know something about Scripture or theology, then ask it, but don't don't ask a question in the form of an argument. And then, uh, lastly, some questions can't be answered. I made this point the last time we had this that um, God is uh, a lot of things about God and theology are mysteries. That doesn't mean they're they're not true. That just means that we don't have capacity to understand them. And there are going to be things if that you add, none, none of the stuff really that we're addressing tonight is is too difficult to answer, but there are aspects of all of these questions that I'm, you know, I may have to say, look, I don't know. And along with that, I will say these are mostly uh, what we call now hot takes, okay? They're, they're, I'm not, I haven't gone through all the commentaries and Bible dictionaries and all that to answer these questions in a full format way. The, what I intend with the answer to these questions really is to point you in the right direction so that you might go on to study more and answer the questions or think through them more deeply. Uh, and hopefully, to some extent, they will give you an answer. But um, if you leave not feeling satisfied with my answers, that's partly intentional because I want you to go on and, and, uh, and, and study and, and uh, seek your own uh, understanding of that question. So with all that said, uh, we'll start with the first question, which is a really good one. It's a fun one to answer. Uh, it's one that uh, doesn't lack any, uh, any shortage of attempts to answer it, and that is, what should Christians make of creation theories like the day-age theory? The person that asked this question 
had had read about the day age theory of creation, which I'll I'll explain in just a minute. And this is my longest answer, so um, y'all bear with me on this. But uh, but I want to kind of use that as a launching point for going into more of a, a broader question of what do we do with uh, evolution and what do we do with uh, Christian attempts to syncretize or synchronize the the theory of evolution with um, Bible teaching. And so first we have to understand the problem that's trying to be addressed with the question of or, or with the theory of uh, the day-age theory or any other theory of trying to synchronize Christian teaching with uh, the theory of evolution. Um, and that is that the creation story of the Bible doesn't seem to match with scientific theory. If you if you know anything about evolution, we'll talk a bit of, a bit about it here in just a second. But uh, you know, if you read Genesis one and two, that story of a literal six day creation uh, doesn't seem to match at all with what scientists say has happened over billions of years of uh, of natural history, and so. To start with, let me explain that I'm going to call the idea of a literal six-day creation, which you find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, or, or mostly in Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to call that a creationist account, okay? That we, when I say creationist, I mean someone who believes that the Bible teaches strictly that there, God created the world in six literal days, Okay, um, and then you have the evolutionary account, right? Which is uh, really pretty well opposed to that. Which is the idea that life on Earth evolved over billions of years uh, through natural selection, and so you started with uh, cellular life, uh, bacteria, which uh, through what they call evolutionary pressures caused, uh, you know, multicell. Uh, organisms which led to fish and then uh, amphibians and then mammals and on and on and on. And so uh, that's the evolutionary account. So the creationist view argues for a young earth, right? A lot of, a lot of creationists will even try to argue that the earth is no more than around 10,000 years old because if you take the accounts of Genesis, and some, some have done this, and you take the the lineages of the first 10 chapters of Genesis and you trace them back, then you end up coming to somewhere around 8,000 years old. Um, and so they, they take that uh, view that the, the, young, the earth is young and that it only appears to be old. Um, so that, that's the creationist view. But this, this view seems to be contradicted by a lot of what science presents, like, for example, radiocarbon dating, which is the idea that you can take radioactive carbon and over time, car the radioactive carbon in anything that has ever lived cut is cut in half. And so it's called a half-life. And so every, I think it's uh, 500 and something years, every 500 and something years, you, the radioactive carbon in anything that is living is cut in half. And so they can take um, a tool and, and radiocarbon date something and it will give you 
an idea of how old that thing is. And then you have issues like astrophysics where, you know, if you, if you look out into the stars, some of those stars are millions and millions of light years away from us. So a light year is the amount of time it takes light to travel uh, a year or, or the distance, I should say, that light travels in a year. That's the better way to say it. Okay, so if it's millions and millions of light years away, then in a lot of cases, if, science, if uh, astrophysics is right, what we're looking at may already be dead. The, the things we're looking at may already actually have burned out and gone because the light is just now reaching us, even though the, the star or the planet or whatever it is is, is millions and millions of years away, uh, light years away, I should say. So I say all that to point out this is, this is the, the rub, okay? I want to I wanna get that detail because this is where the rub is between the creation account and the scientific account of, or the evolutionary account of creation. So Christians, especially during the 1900s, felt like they had to address evolution. And so over the course of 100 years or more, uh, Christians came up with various answers to the problem of evolution and and what uh, the, the challenge they saw to the Bible in evolution. So I'm just going to go through a number of these theories, and I'll try to do it in a way that you can write these down if you want. But the first is theistic evolution, and that is people just said, okay, well, science reveals that you're, uh, that evolution is the way in which the world was created, and so they say, well, God used evolution as the means by which he created the world. And so the Bible, um, they, a lot of people in this Belief, they would say that the Bible is out of sync with how creation actually happened, and therefore, you know, we we in all effects we deny Scripture. You know, we're we're just not going to consider Scripture when it uh, comes to that. So the problem with that, very obviously, is it denies Scripture, right? That if we're not going to take Scripture into account for uh, how the world is made, but Scripture provides an account of how the world is made, then we're not taking Scripture seriously, and that leads to all sorts of problems down the road. Um, the second theory is the day-age theory, which is the question that um, led, or the, the theory that led to the question. And that is the idea that, um, you know, when you read, sir, I, I meant to look this up, but there's a passage of Scripture, I think it's in Isaiah, that says, that to the Lord a day is as a thousand years. You all know, know that scripture. And, um, and a thousand years is but a day. And so uh, people will take that passage along with the fact that uh, they say that he, Hebrews didn't really believe in or didn't really have a time frame for days. Okay, so when they, the word day for a Hebrew was just a placeholder for time. It wasn't like uh, of any length, any set length of time. So let me give you a very easy way to understand that. Right now, we have our our day is divided into how many hours? Pop quiz. Surely y'all know this. Twenty four. Um, Twenty four hours. Right. And we measure that in in our day and time strictly by a watch. Right. 
And so we, we look at our watch and we say, Brother Nathan's gone past seven o'clock. It is time for him to stop. And we judge, we judge everything by that, right? And we judge someone's responsiveness by how uh, punctual they are and all of that stuff. Uh, the rest of the world, a lot of the rest of the world, even today, doesn't do that. I hate to tell you this, but if you go to Haiti, you go to, you, you go to church at 6, and you may actually tar, start church at 6.30, okay? And you may go for another two hours because they don't judge time in the way that we judge time. Because our whole society is sort of built around keeping time, but the rest of the world, or a lot of the world, isn't. Well, in, the sa- in a similar way, the Jewish life wasn't governed so strictly by 24-hour time. Now, they divided their day into 24-hour time as well. But if you think, uh, if, if your way of measuring a day is a sundial, and uh, that sundial is only going to be 12 hours long two days a year, right? There uh, is the autumn equinox and the spring equinox. Every other day than that is either going to be shorter than 12 hours or longer than 12 hours. So they didn't judge, judge time like we judge time. And so the argument of the day-age theory is they, that to the Israelite um, and to the Hebrew, time was sort of fluid. It was, it was malleable, if you will. And so they didn't see it as a strict We've got to make sure that we're, we're talking about 24-hour days. And so what the day-age theory says is that the day that is mentioned in the six days of creation could be any length of time. And so if, if it says on the, third, on the um, you know, fifth day God made birds and fish and all these different things, then that... That could be millions of years if, if it was what God intended it to be. The problem with this, though, the problem with this theory is that, first of all, Genesis chapter 1 gives a measure for every day. If you go and you read Genesis chapter 1, starting in, I think it's verse 4, it says, And evening and morning were the first day. Okay, so the day is actually defined in Genesis chapter one. It is it has boundaries that are set. And that's very important, by the way, to hold on to, because that's the general point of Genesis one is God establishing boundaries for everything. So a major theme of Genesis one itself is God establishing time and him setting order to the seasons, order to the days, order to all these things. And that comes up again also in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, where God gives the commandment for uh, the Sabbath. And he says, for in six days, God created everything. And on the seventh, he rested. So the whole of man's existence and his seven-day work week or six-day work week and his rest on the seventh day is based on God's pattern of creation. Okay, so that's the problem with the day-age theory. Um, and then another one that's very similar to that is um, I, there's several names for it, but I'm going to call it the gap theory, which is the idea that the days are literal, that God 
literally created you know fish on the fifth day of his creative work but um but those days may be spaced out between millennia so god created light and then he waited you know a billion years and then he created uh the next thing uh the land and then he created or the firmament and the and the sea and then he created the land and the um the fish and all of those different things. He did all those things on specific days, but those days have gaps between them so that you have millions or billions of years between each of those days. And uh, the, the problem with that uh, solution is it, it runs into a very similar problem to the day-age theory, which is um, creation week, the week that we have in Genesis chapter 1, it addresses, it, it is used by Israel, by God to Israel, to justify their work week. And so uh, if, if Moses or God says through Moses in Exodus chapter 20 that God made everything in six days, the whole point there is he worked in six days, you work in six days. He didn't say you work in one day, take a break. Work another day, and that's take two. Take a break. That's Micah's kind of work right there. Uh, uh, but uh, he he takes uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to lend itself to the idea that there are gaps. The next theory is the pre-Adamic theory, and this is the idea. If you read Genesis chapter one, there the first two verses say, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was." Uh, void and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. So the pre-Adamic theory is the idea that something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. And that is that God, there was a whole other creation that God made, including the dinosaurs and all the fossil records and all that, and that God judged that world. And that's why in Genesis chapter 1, 1 verse 2, you have a flood. You have water hover, water over the face, or you have water covering all the earth, and it seems like you go from God created the heavens and the earth to now God is hovering over the face of the deep. And so, uh, basically, this is an attempt to make meaning out of those two verses. The problem is this pulls a whole story out of what isn't said, right? So it doesn't say in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that anything happened. It doesn't, and nowhere else in Scripture does it say that anything happened between the space of verse 1 and verse 2. But uh, if you have a Schofield Bible or you know Schofield, Schofield was very uh, into this theory of, in fact, I think he's the one that proposed this theory of uh, a space between verses 1 and verse 2 that get, allow for uh, all the evolutionary things and to explain the the millions and millions of years and that sort of thing. And the last one um, is very similar to that, which is the what I call the earth versus land theory. So the Hebrew word for earth is Adama, and it can be used both for the whole earth or it can be used for the dirt in your garden. Okay, so it, uh, it the context of how it's used is what matters. So if if you read, you know that uh, uh, Cain was a worker of the ground, for example, 
that ground there is Adama. And so it means he, he grew vegetables, right? Um, but it doesn't mean that he worked over all the earth. And so the question is, when it says that God, uh, you know, made the earth in six days, is it talking about the, um, the whole earth or is it talking about a specific place? And so people that hold to this idea would say that Genesis 1 and 2 is a record of the creation of the promised land and of Eden. Okay, so um, they, they're saying that God did a general creation in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, there's everything. And then in the rest of Genesis chapter 1, he made uh, the, the promised land. Okay. The problem with this is uh, much of the creation na- narrative sounds global. Like I could go for this if you're talking about God pulling ground out of the water or God uh, putting animals on the face of the earth or something like that. But it says he created light. I'm not sure how you get how you say, well, he made light everywhere else, but he didn't make it in the promised land. And then he made light. You know, I don't know how that works. So. uh, So those are the theories that attempt to respond to uh, evolution. All those have their problems, but let's not miss the problems with evolution itself. Okay. So I think any response to the theory of evolution ought to call into question the theory of evolution. It ought to not be just, well, we got to make this work with the theory of evolution. So let me give you some problems with the theory of evolution. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't aspects of the theory of evolution that are va- aren't valid and things like that. There certainly are. But let me give you some questions that ought to be raised anytime we start hearing somebody say, well, you know, the earth existed over billions and billions of years. Well, here's some problems. First of all, one that's hit me just recently, and I told Leah's tired of, Leah and Eden, I'm sure, are tired of hearing this because I've used this example in, at home a hundred times already in this week, but uh, because it's amazing. Um, but there, um, there are in a, a gazillion symbiotic relationships in the world, right? In, on earth. So you cannot eat and digest your food without bacteria that is not naturally there or not originally there when you're born. When you're born, you don't have anything in your stomach, any, any living organism besides yourself in your stomach. And then through breastfeeding or through the formula, your, your body receives uh, bacteria. And that bacteria... You could not digest your food if it weren't for that bacteria in your body. But that bacteria was not there when you uh, were born. So you need the bacteria. The bacteria needs you. How did those two things evolve separately? Right? If, If the bacteria evolved over billions and billions of years and the humans evolved over billions of years, but they need each other, how did they sync up on that, you know? Or bees and flowers, right? Certain flowers 
are made for certain animals, certain bees, and certain bees pollinate certain flowers. I, I was out there, I, I was walking the trash down because that's part of my husbandly duties as part of what we talked about this morning. But the, uh, I was walking the trash down to the road uh, before we came here tonight, and I was coming back, and there I don't even know what kind of tree it is, but uh, there's these trees on our driveway, and they were the trees were buzzing. And I looked, and it was all bumblebees. No, no other bees in the tree, but just bumblebees. But they were going to town. And if you go out into a field or go out into the forest, you'll notice that there are certain trees that are pollinated by butterflies or flowers that are pollinated by butterflies, certain that are pollinated by bees. It's just all different. But they all need the bees, and they need those certain um, certain kinds. But let me tell you the weirdest thing, and this is the thing that Leah and Eden are tired of hearing about. Uh, and so a lot of y'all probably already know this. Have y'all ever heard of a fig wasp? Have y'all, anybody? Just recently? A fig wasp. So a f- if you ever notice, you take a fig and you look at the bottom of it. You ever notice it's got a hole in it? And that hole is designed for a specific wasp, a fig wasp. There is no other, no other uh, type of wasp that can fit through that hole. Only a fig wasp can fit through that hole. And a fig is actually not a fruit. A fig is a flower with the flowers on the inside. Uh, that's when you open it up, it, you can kind of tell that. And those flowers are pollinated because this fig, this fig wasp, a female, will burr, burr herself into that fig. She will lay larvae in some of the blooms of the fig that are on the inside, and she will pollinate some because she's picked up pollen as she's, as she's gone throughout her life. She will then die in that fig. Her, um, the, her larva will be, uh, the male larva will be hatched, they will uh, mate with the other female larvae that are in there, and then they'll burrow themselves out and providing a means for the females to escape as they leave the fig. And all that happened. You didn't know you were eating larvae when you ate a fig. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> just Hey, it's prime fig season too, and y'all, y'all ain't going to... I won't be getting any preserves this, or maybe I'll get a bunch of preserves because y'all are trying to get rid of them. But, uh, but they, uh, <laughs> the good news is the fig that we typically use is called a common fig, which actually doesn't do that anymore. So we've bred out the need for the, the fig wasp, but some natural, all the natural figs that you see throughout the world are pollinated in that manner. Now, a fig wasp needs a fig, right? And a fig needs a fig wasp, or they need, neither of them survive. So they had to be made together. They couldn't be made, or they had to be made for each other. They couldn't evolve separately over millions and millions of years to do that functionality. I was watching a video on this, and the person that was doing the video at the end of the video said that it took 90 million years for this to happen. I'm like, but how? How did it ever start to happen if, if it, they had to have each other from the start to, to actually survive? 
So that's a big question, symbiotic relationships. Um, The second is life seems to exist as far back as we go. You can take, uh, the scientists say that you can take the oldest known rock formations that we have, do a microscopic scan of them, and there are pieces of uh, living organisms in them. So the, the rock that they would say was from the primordial earth that existed before life ever existed, they have actually done scans of them and found life. So uh, on all the oldest rocks we've got, there's still life. Along with that, you have the idea of the Cambrian explosion, which is if you look at the fossil record, the fossil record doesn't start, doesn't, it doesn't grow incrementally. Okay, all the, they call it the Cambrian explosion because all of a sudden there's just boom, there's invertebrates and vertebrates and all these different types of animals in the fossil record. It doesn't start growing and then suddenly there, I mean, and, and then they uh, progress over time. It's all of a sudden there's a large portion of animals there. Uh, the other is, uh, and this is a big one for me being an engineer, is chaos does not ever bring order, right? The, the typical analogy is you don't expect a tornado to run through a lumberyard and on the, uh, when it gets through, there'll be a, ho- a three-story house built. You know, you, that's ridiculous. We all think it's ridiculous on its face. And so um, chaos does not bring order. In fact, there's a theory of, that we use a lot in engineering called the second law of thermodynamics. Is how your air conditioners work right now. But uh, the second law of thermodynamics says that all processes in the world, uh, in the universe, they add to the chaos of the world or add to the entropy. So everything degrades in complexity. It doesn't improve in complexity. Um, everything is, is dying. Everything is giving out. The sun is giving out of energy the, the stars, all, everything is giving out. It's not improving in its, in its uh, uh, order. So, and then lastly, and again, another big one for me as an engineer, as a computer engineer especially, is that natural processes do not produce information. So your body is, is built upon DNA, right? The D, which are instructions, there is programming. And so your body is made to read programming and produce more things and to function in a certain way. And so your, your DNA defines in a lot of ways who you are and how you're going to grow and change as a person. Um, that DNA is information and information doesn't come through natural processes. You don't expect to be walking along the seashore and find a poem of Shakespeare, right? If you were to find that, you wouldn't say, oh, look at what these waves made. You would say, somebody dropped a poem of Shakespeare right here, right? Um, and in a similar way, our, our uh, body is much more complicated information, has much more complicated information than any poetry or, or anything else that we might Uh, think of. And so all those questions and many more should be asked of evolution. And evolution can't answer those questions. And beyond that, not just the natural things, but you get beyond the natural issues to the issues of morality, right? So 
what do we do? So if we're all just products of chaos, if we're all just made by random acts of natural processes, then why should I care about you? If I get angry with you, what's wrong? What's morally wrong with me killing you? There's nothing morally wrong with me killing you. If we're just chemical reactions that are randomly joined together by chaos and, and time, right? So it, evolution can't even begin to answer those sorts of questions. There's no framework for science to answer those sorts of questions. So all those get to, let me just, in short, explain to you what I believe, okay? I default to a literal creationist view. Uh, I hold to that, but I will say I hold to this position with humility for one important reason. Um, I, I do think that this is probably the clearest way to understand Genesis, but I want to address something that is a misconception about Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 was not written as a rebuttal of evolution. It was written as a rebuttal of Mesopotamian pagan religions, okay? And if you don't understand that and you take it and say, well, I'm going to take it and argue against my science professor at, at college, then you are misapplying Scripture to use it in that way. I'm not saying that you can't understand something about the world in reading it that way, and I'm not saying that it doesn't have something to say about evolution. It obviously does. What I'm saying is what we have in Genesis is not a argument against evolution at all. It's an argument against the false belief of those around Israel and even those inside of Israel. So much of what is recorded has direct connections to ancient Mesopotamian beliefs. And a lot of what's said in Genesis 1 is dealing with false beliefs about the creation of the world. So, for example, in Mesopotamian belief, they believe that the god Marduk uh, wrestled with the goddess of chaos. And I can't remember her name. Actually, I can probably look it up real quick. Um, let me look it up because it's important to the point I'm going to make. And of course, my computer's not going to work. Technology. It's wonderful when it works. When it works. All right, so anyway, the goddess of chaos, her name is actually the same, and that's what I was going to look up. Her, what's that? Okay, that is, the goddess of chaos, Tiamat, is the Hebrew word used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, and the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the deep. That word, the deep there, is Tiamat. Okay, and so what the... Um, what the Mesopotamians believe is that Marduk wrestled with Tiamat, and in their wrestling, as they're wrestling and fighting, the, the world came to be. So, you know, he's, 
he's beating up Tiamat, who I think was a, a serpent, right, Leah? Huh. Uh, oh, now you're now you're not an expert. All right. Uh, so uh, he's he's beating up Tiamat, and the blood of Tiamat is spreading all over the universe, and that's making the world. And so they. Uh, there's, it's chaotic and it's meaningless, right? So if you're just if we're the products of two gods fighting, then we don't have any moral value, and the world doesn't have any moral value. But what Genesis one reveals is that we were made, or God made the world in an orderly fashion, and it wasn't a fight. He spoke, and a creation snapped to be right. It wasn't, he, wasn't try, he wasn't fighting it out with uh, Tiamat. He wasn't trying to win. He had already won. And he was doing what he, uh, everything that he wanted. And the world answered, responded to his command. Not only that, but humans in the Mesopotamian uh, beliefs were an afterthought. They were, again, like I said, they were the product of this chaotic fight between Marduk and Tiamat. And, um, but in God's story of creation in Genesis 1, are we a mistake? Are we chaotic? No, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. We are made in the image of God. That word image, in, in Mesopotamian culture, there was one person in all of Mesopotamia who was made in the image of God. The king. But in God's creation, every human being is made in the image of God. And like I've preached before, we are all kings and queens of God's creation. We're all made to rule and to reign with Christ. And so that that is um, what I mean by the, the we have to read Genesis for what it's meant to be understood for. And it's meant to answer back to the issues of of Mesopotamia. Now, a lot of those carry over to today. A lot of there's chaos in the evolutionary story, so there's connections there. There's people believe that nothing really means anything and nothing really matters anymore, and, and that's a very popular view in our day. So there's still connections there with uh, uh, Genesis one. People believe that. Um, you know, there's no set order to anything that you can be a boy one day and you can be a girl the next day and and or you can love who you want to love, things like that. But the creation story tells us that God created boundaries. He created order. Um, so those things still matter and it still addresses the issues of the day. So lastly, on this question, can someone hold to one of these other theories and be a Christian? And my answer first is yes. Um, and we have to decide whether the issue, and this is a warning to anyone who would kind of delve into any of these theories of uh, Christian evolution or, or theistic evolution, and some measures of whether a belief, we can receive someone who holds that belief into Christian fellowship. First of all, does the belief teach something false about God's character? So if you're holding to evolution because you're saying, well, you know, it had to be that God created it through evolution. If you're holding to that because you can't imagine a God who was powerful enough to create the world in six literal days, then you are questioning God's character. And that's a serious concern, something that we can't, I don't think we can abide. 
Um, Second, does the belief contradict Jesus' own teaching? So Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2, as we saw this morning, and he quotes the, the, marriage, the order, order for marriage, and he quotes Genesis chapter 6 in the story of the flood, and he quotes those as true stories. So um, if we're going to think we know better than the Son of God, then, then we might have a problem. And then lastly, does the belief falsify our salvation? So I would say that whatever you believe about the way God created the world, one thing you have to believe, I think, uncontrovertibly, is that there was a literal Adam, okay? A literal Adam who was the progenitor of all of the human race. And the reason you have to believe that is what we've already studied in Romans chapter 5, right? That through one man, sin entered the world, and all sinned and died through that one man. And through one man, all who believe in him are redeemed through Jesus Christ. So you have to believe, I think, in a literal Adam and a literal Eve who were the first man and woman who led to the, the fall of man. And anything else about accepting evolutionary theory that would call into question our salvation or the way our salvation is, is uh, or the way it works would be a part of that example. All right, so that's my answer to that. I know that's the longest answer. We don't have as long on any of the others. Any questions or, uh, to follow up on that? Like I said, no, I did a good enough job on that. Miss Nell? Yes, ma'am. Right. So God is what we call the first cause, okay? He is the cause that led to all other causes. And you have, in any idea of the way the world came to be, 
you have to have a first cause, right? The the uh, the skeptic has, or the the secularist has, the Big Bang theory, and and the Big Bang theory is there was a primordial uh, substance that was before all things, and it and it suddenly exploded and caused all that came to be. So you have to have something that was the uh, before all things. It's not like uh, uh, what's her name on Sound of Music. She's saying uh, nothing comes from nothing. I think nothing ever did. Uh, uh, at some point in my life, I must have done something good. You know, you know, no, something has to come from something, right? And so the God is the the only eternal cause. He is the only thing that has always existed. And you're right, Miss Mel, that that is a mystery. That gets to that idea of mystery that I mentioned before, that we, we just have to say at some point, look, I don't know. And I think there's the right answer to say, I don't know. But um, I do know that he, is, he says that he is from everlasting to everlasting, and he is the Alpha and the Omega, and that before all, he was before all things, and and, and all that. So, um, well, let's move on to the next question. What does Revelation 3 verses 14 through 21 mean? And specifically, does this mean that it is possible to lose your salvation? So let's read real quick Revelation chapter 3 verses, um, maybe my Bible app will work. It's not going to work. I can tell. I'm ready. Revelation chapter 3, verses... Oh, here we go. Verses 14 through 21. It says, And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen." and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the question is, it says there that these, uh, the church at Laodicea is a lukewarm church and that they are neither hot nor cold. And because of that, God is going to spit them out of his mouth. So is that saying that if you're lukewarm as a Christian, if you're not hot for God or you're not unbelieving does that mean that God will spit you out of his mouth and, and, and cast you out of the church and, and uh, you'll lose your salvation as a result? And now one thing to notice is 
all of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, they are written to the churches, not to individuals. Okay, so what is said to Laodicea is said to the church. In fact, if you read it, it talks about how God is going to remove his lampstand. Uh, Jesus is going to remove his lampstand. And that's an idea that he's going to destroy that church. He's going to dissolve that church, so to speak. So uh, it's not talking about uh, individuals who are lukewarm. This is talking about a church who is not living for or is not working for Christ, not, not living for Christ. So let me give you an example of that. One of the most misused passages, misused verses in all of Scripture is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open, here's my voice, and open the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And we often give that passage or that verse as kind of a witnessing verse, right? If you'll respond to Jesus, if you'll open the door of your heart and respond to Jesus, then he'll come in and he'll take residence in your heart. It's not at all what that passage means, okay? What it means is, catch the imagery here. We're all here on a Sunday. We're meeting together, and God, I hope this never happens at Antioch West. Antioch West is a living church. It's not a, a lukewarm church, okay? But, um, but Antioch, we're all meeting here on a Sunday. We're about to take communion, We've prayed over communion. We're doing it just right. We're giving out the right elements. We're following things like we're supposed to follow. But Jesus is outside. Jesus ain't even in the church with us. And Jesus is standing at the door, knocking, saying, Hey guys, I hear y'all inside having communion. If you'll let me in, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. That's what that passage means. Okay, They, they don't even consider Jesus... In their order of worship. They aren't even seeking Jesus in their order of worship. They're lukewarm. They're un, unconcerned about Jesus in their work as a church. Okay, They're going through the motions. They're doing all the right things. But they're really uh, unconcerned and, and lukewarm. So this the passage has, in my opinion, has very little if nothing to do with the individual Christian. It has to do with the church at Laodicea not being obedient to Christ and not being passionate about their service to Christ. Um, and so when it talks about being lukewarm, it's not talking about Jesus spitting out individuals or casting individuals out of the church or out of salvation. It's talking about uh, uh, the church as a whole. What time do we have? Uh-oh. Uh, well, I'm going to be Jewish and not consider literal hours. But uh, so I'll deal with this question. Um, deal with this question as quickly as possible. So one question that was asked, and I want to deal with this one because it was the first question that was asked, was uh, where do races come from? Uh, and what about theories about Africans coming from Cain or Ham? So the, there are theories that uh, the different races came out of, or, or particularly African-Americans or Africans in general, not African-Americans, blacks, came from either Cain uh, or from uh, Ham. Who, and uh, so Cain, we can just throw Cain's, that theory about Cain out the window because Cain was before a big event that happened to all of the world. 
that in which everybody but eight people were judged. The flood, right? So if you're not a descendant of Noah, you're not in the consideration after the flood, right? So we can't say that, that any race came from uh, Cain. So uh, Ham, though, in Genesis chapter 9, remember the story of, Gen- of Noah getting drunk and Ham came in and he mocked his father and, and uh, then Noah curses Ca- uh, Ham's son, Canaan, as a result of that. So Ham is also the father, we find out in Genesis chapter 10, of Cush. And Cush, the word Cush, means black. And it is the area of Ethiopia and in parts of Africa. And so uh, we, we can say to some extent Ham is the progenitor of the, uh, the black race. But we need to deal with, when we hear that, we need to deal with the sins of our past. Because this argument that uh, Ham was the, the father of the African nations and the, particularly the black race is uh, used or has been used and, and is still used in, in some circles as a justification for enslaving Africans and for treating them as less than human. Because the argument goes that God cursed Ham, and because God cursed Ham, it, and it, it even actually says that his descendants would be enslaved, that therefore we're justified to treat them poorly or to treat them as non-human or to treat them as cursed or to enslave them. And uh, so they, people will either argue that they deserve to be enslaved or that God even commanded them to be enslaved because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, Noah curses Canaan, Ham's son. But there's a whole lot of problems with that. Uh, number one, Noah doesn't curse Ham. Ham's descendant is Cush and Canaan and all these other people. Noah doesn't curse Ham. He curses Canaan. And Canaan are the Canaanites that Israel would later enslave. Okay, so that is a direct prophecy of what Israel would later do, not a prophecy of American slavery or a justification for it. Uh, Also, one of the first to hear the gospel was an Ethiopian eunuch, a descendant of Ham. And one of the oldest churches, if not the oldest, longest running church, is the Ethiopian church. And so it's hard to say that they don't deserve uh, or that they should be cursed when Jesus didn't curse them. Jesus, the gospel went to the Ethiopians before it came to our, genera- our, our descendants who were, or our uh, ancestors who were uh, Irish and English and all of those. So, so when we think of where races come from, uh, I think all people tend to be guilty of thinking that our race was the first. But why would we assume that whites were the first race? They weren't, actually, according to genetic studies. And the first races were actually probably Arabian and Ethiopian, who all were darker skinned. So. Lighter skin tones actually came as the result of 
uh, breeding and, and spreading out into colder climates and the tendency to, you tend to choose people who fit the climate better and things like that. And so uh, you, you tend not to choose a husband that's, that's sickly in colder climates because he's not conditioned to those climates, right, or vice versa. So I think that our skin tones came as just the natural re- result of spreading out, particularly after the Tower of Babel and, and breeding and that sort of thing, uh, just the selection of, of mates that ended up uh, leading to our different races. Um, all right, so we have two other questions. I can either get to them or we can stop. Uh, y'all don't want to say y'all want to stop. Um, <laughs> it don't matter. All right, it, these other two are not very long. So um, if we're, if the first, the second to the last question is, if our bodies will be resurrected, what will happen to those who are cremated or are burned up by an accident or just or lost at sea or whatever? Um, to answer that, uh, I'll encourage you to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. And in those verses, Paul gives this analogy. And he says that our bodies are like a kernel. And I think this is a great analogy, especially for folks who do gardening. Um, when you plant a kernel of corn, that what comes out of the ground after you plant that kernel, is it, does it look like a kernel? No, it's green and pretty and all that. It looks different, right? And the kernel is part of the plant that came from, uh, that, that was originally uh, where you got the seed, right? So I think that analogy is very helpful for understanding cremation because God doesn't need every part of your body. He doesn't need, uh, he doesn't need any of your body, I should say, but he doesn't, uh, the point is not, he's going to take just what you've got, and if all you've got is an arm, that's all you're going to be in heaven's an arm. You know, (laughs) what what he's, the point is that he's going to take the kernel that is your body, and from that, He's going to make a heavenly body. In fact, Paul goes on to say that we don't know what our heavenly body is going to be like. It's going to be similar but different. It's going to be spiritual where our body currently is carnal. So uh, it's going to be different in a lot of ways. Now, some denominations resist cremation uh, not because God isn't able to resurrect someone who has been cremated, but because they would argue it treats the body poorly. Uh, and so some people, uh, some, uh, or I know Roman Catholics, some Presbyterians and other uh, more traditional denominations, they hold to the idea that, or some in those denominations hold to the idea that we shouldn't cremate because uh, you're, you're showing disrespect for the body is the argument. But what I think is uh, cremation, embalming, uh, natural uh, burial, whatever it is, as long as you are honoring the fact that God will return and will resurrect the body, then it doesn't matter what you do with that body in the meantime. I do think that you should respect and honor the person and the life that God gave you in that person and that you should hope for the resurrection of the dead and that person being included in that resurrection but as far as what you do with the body, 
uh, I think that uh, the, there's freedom there uh, in Scripture to, to do as you see fit. Um, and then the last question is, what does it mean to be judged for every idle word? So let's, we do need to look up the passage for that. It's Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through uh, 37. Somebody read that for me if you get there. My computer's being bad again. Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Okay, so Jesus says that you will be judged for every idle word that you speak. Now, this word idle is the Greek word argos, which means useless or idle or careless. And uh, it's used in two places. One is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, which uh, Paul tells Timothy, don't let people be idle with their speak. Uh, and he's talking about gossipers, talking about... Um, People will be in careless with how they speak. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 is another place that it's used. But we get the idea of what Jesus means actually in verse 34. So basically what Jesus says in verse 34 of chapter 12 is what you say ultimately comes from your heart. So out of the heart comes evil things and out of the heart comes good things. But what you say is a reflection of your heart. And so Jesus, in saying that your words will be judged, is not saying if you are, uh, if you like to talk about football, and that's, use, you know, useless, people might say that's useless talk, then you're going to be judged by God, that you wasted your words. That's not what he's talking about. Um, I don't think he's even necessarily talking about uh, an instance of gossip here. What I think he's talking about is if your life is full of useless, meaningless talk, if you do nothing but uh, nothing with your life that is glorifying to God, it's a reflection of your heart and you will ultimately be judged for it. Okay? Um, I, I think that uh, when we, that because our words are a reflection of who we are, and how we speak to others, how we deal with others is a reflection of who we are, then it is not the words that are being judged so much as it is the heart from which the words come that are being judged. Does that make sense? All right, well, that's the last question, and I've used up all our time intentionally so that you can't ask any more. No, you're just, just kidding. I would have been glad to answer any more, but, uh, but we're out of time. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had to talk and to answer questions. Lord, I pray that it's been helpful and well-received. I pray that you will use it as a chance to uh, draw us closer to you and that it, through 
our exploration of these questions that we would be spurred on to deeper and greater knowledge of you because we know that you are um, a, a great and mysterious God who is uh, worthy of all uh, effort to understand and to know. Pray that you would bless us now in Christ's name I pray. Amen.